0: Thank you, it's good to be with you, good to be here, um, if you have a Bible open it at Matthew 25, sometimes I like to read a whole chapter, sometimes I like to focus on a passage, I've even preached from a verse, today we've got a whole chapter, it's, good. it's a good one, it's a good one, it would do us good, and if nothing else, you get the truth from the chapter and we can go home, no i only joking, So, Matthew 25 is our chapter for today. Now, I encourage you to um, kind of enter into what we might call biblical meditation here. These are three stories, three parables that Jesus gave, and it's really helpful if you kind of engage with it, even project yourself into the story, imagine the scene. So you could do that in different ways. You could close your eyes and just listen intently. As long as you open them again when I've finished and I'm carrying on, I won't be discouraged. Uh, But that can help, can't it? Or you could read it simultaneously in your version, because I've got a different version here. I've got the truth, which I find quite quite helpful sometimes, and you may not have that version. But reading it in your version and engaging with the points of difference and seeing how the language slightly alters but the meaning is the same can help you engage with it. Uh, There you go. So take your pick. Matthew 25. This future revelation of the kingdom of heaven can be likened to ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five were foolish and five were wise. Although the foolish ones took their lamps, they did not take any spare oil with them. However, the wise took jars of oil as well as their lamps. Now, because the bridegroom was such a long time in coming, they all became tired and fell asleep. Then at midnight, they heard a shout, here comes the bridegroom. Come and meet him. All the bridesmaids woke and prepared their lamps. But the foolish ones said to the wise, Our lamps are going out. Give us some of your oil. But the wise ones replied, No, there is not enough for, us, for all of us. You must go and buy some oil for yourselves. But while uh, while on their way to the store, the bridegroom arrived. The wise bridesmaids were ready and followed him into the wedding feast. Then the doors were shut. Later, the foolish ones arrived. Sir, sir, they pleaded. Open the door so we can come in. But the bridegroom responded, I tell you the truth. I do not know you. So be on the alert because you do not know the day or the time when the bridegroom will come to you. You can also compare the kingdom of heaven to a man who, because he was going to be away on a long journey, called his servants together and gave them various sums of money to put to use. To one he gave 5,000, to another 2,000, and to a third 1,000, knowing they had different abilities. The man who had been entrusted with 5,000 used the money well and doubled the amount, making a further 5,000. The servant who had been given 2,000 also doubled the amount and made a further 2,000 profit. However, the man with the 1,000 merely found a safe place and hid his master's money. The master returned after a long time and called the servants to account for how they had used the money. The man who had received 5,000 brought the further 5,000 profit he had made, saying, Master, I have doubled the 5,000 you entrusted to me. His master replied, You have done well. You are a good and faithful servant. You have proved your faithfulness in a small way. Now I will give you much more responsibility. Come and share in your master's joy. Then the man who had been given 2,000 came forward and said, Master, I have doubled the 2,000 you gave me to use. His master replied, You also have done well and are a good and faithful servant. You have proved your faithfulness. So now I can promote you. Come and share in my delight then the man who'd been entrusted with 1,000 came forward and said master I regarded you as a hard man expecting to gather a harvest where you've not sown the seed yourself so in fear I went and put your money in a safe place so here it is I return what belongs to you his master replied you are a wretched lazy servant If you knew that I expected to gather a harvest where I have not sown personally, then you should at least have deposited my money in the bank, where it would have gained some interest by the time I returned. Then he ordered, Take the thousand from him and give it to the one who now has ten thousand. For everyone who is faithful in using what he has received will be given more, so much more that he will have an abundance But those who are unfruitful in the way they use the little they have will end up with nothing. Everything will be taken from them. Throw this useless servant out into the spiritual darkness where there will be continual mourning and eternal suffering. One more story to go. When the Son of Man returns, he will come in glory, attended by angels, and he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, so he will divide the people into two groups. Those who are his sheep, he will place on his right. The goats will be on his left. The king will say to the sheep on his right, You are blessed by my father, so come and claim your inheritance, the kingdom he prepared for you since the creation began. For you fed me when I was hungry, and you satisfied my thirst. When I came to you in the form of a stranger, you invited me in to stay. When I needed clothing, you gave me clothes. When I was sick, you cared for me. And when I was in prison, you came and visited me." Then the righteous, the sheep, will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or when did we satisfy your thirst? When did we invite you in as a stranger or clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? The king will then reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for another person who I regard as my brother or sister, you actually did for me. But then the king will say to the goats on his left, Go away from me into the eternal fire made ready for the devil and his angels, for you are cursed. I was hungry, but you gave me nothing. I was thirsty, and you did not care. I was a stranger, and you ignored me. I was cold, and you gave me nothing to wear. I was sick and in prison, and you avoided me. Then the goats will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and thirsty, or as a stranger, or cold, sick, or in prison, and did nothing to help you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, when you fail to do any of these things for other people who I regard as my brothers and sisters, you refuse to do them for me. Then the goats will suffer eternal punishment, but the righteous sheep will enjoy eternal life. Heavenly Father, these are great stories at one level. And Jesus, to imagine to have been there when you said them for the first time. Wow, I bet you couldn't hear a pin. You could have heard a pin drop. But Jesus, please help us. I don't think you shared these for amusement. You shared them to engage with us, to make things clear. And so Holy Spirit, I ask right now that you would help us to hear your word Clearly. And to respond to it well. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for bearing with me on that. It is a long passage. The three parables, I believe, go together, which is why Matthew's recorded them together, because they make an overall point. And I don't want us to miss the big point in getting caught up in some of the minutiae. You know, someone came to our wedding who was uninvited. It's true, Carrie and I were married 20 years ago, this October. She doesn't look old enough, I know. Come on. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was great, it was a great occasion. There we were, tuckered into a bit of tucker, and we spotted somebody in the wedding feast, in the reception, who, who hadn't, wasn't on our list, we know the list, we'd, we'd put it together. They weren't there, they weren't meant to be there. And um, to be fair to the guy, I mean, we, it was a bit of a simple, uh, uh, informal, I would say, re- uh, relatively affair, was our wedding. So you know, it was a bit of informality, and our ushers weren't briefed to be very zealous on, you know, fending off legitimate, uh, misunderstanding people. Uh, we didn't have a seating plan, so it didn't get flushed out from that either. But this, this was a guy that had once proposed to Carrie. <laughs> uh, shit! Well, Why did he think he could possibly? (laughs) Did he think I wasn't going to go through with it or something? Anyway, it just goes to show, doesn't it? Um, I knew I'd married a hot chick when I did. (laughs) Uh, And there's the proof. There was the proof of it. I'm going to get to the specifics of each of these parables, but to start with, I just want to draw out three of the assumptions that I think are in there, but we need to make them explicit. Firstly, if anything is clear from these parables, I think it is that heaven and hell are real and serious. Heaven is likened to this wedding feast where Jesus is the bridegroom and you're either let in or you're shut out in verse 10. Hell is likened to being thrown into spiritual darkness where there'll be continual mourning and eternal suffering in verse 30. These are the words of Jesus. The chapter ends with Jesus explaining that the goat-like folk will suffer eternal punishment in verse 46. A place originally prepared for the devil and his angels, a place of eternal fire. That's what it was there for, originally, for them. But now these goat-like people are going in too. While the sheep, which the passage actually defines as the righteous people, the righteous ones, they'll go into eternal life. They'll enjoy the master's happiness, the happiness of God, the joy of God. They'll go into the full inheritance that Jesus, in turn, has prepared for them. Now you may or may not believe that heaven and hell even exists or that hell is eternal, but I think you'd have to agree with me based on these parables alone that Jesus certainly believed that hell existed and was real and had eternal consequence. The second assumption I think these parables draw out is simply that Jesus came to save. Jesus came to save. He came to save people. He came to save mankind. It's why we as Christians often use words like saviour and salvation and saved. All because Jesus came to save us from something and into something. Jesus came, and it's good news, to save us from eternal punishment. From this place of hell that was prepared for the devil and his demons. He came to rescue us from that destiny. But he also came to save us into something, into something good, into his eternal inheritance, into his presence and his glory, into his victory, into heaven, like a wedding banquet. The third assumption I think is important just to draw out, and if we'd read the preceding chapter, we would have seen this more clearly, that Jesus is coming back. Amen? Amen? Jesus is coming back. Referring to himself in verse 31, he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, he will sit on the throne in heavenly glory, and all the nations, all the peoples, everyone ever, will be gathered before him. When he returns, and he will, and it's good news, there will be a judgment day. And Jesus, the most holy, perfect judge, as we were looking at last week, will be able to meter out, justice in him. He will judge every heart, every person past, present and if there is a future in the future. A day of reckoning a final decision moment will be no appeal process left. There's going to be no second chances after that. So there I think are three assumptions in there implicitly but just drawing them out the other thing I want to convince you of is that these three parables are for the church, and I use it in its broadest definition. These parables are for people who call themselves disciples of Jesus. We might use the word Christian today. It wasn't a word they really used then at all. Christians. And I want to convince you that it is for us, if you like. It's for that category of people. Of course, when Jesus comes and judges, he's going to judge everybody And he's going to separate those who believe in Jesus from the unbeliever. But as a subset within that, he's going to judge those who call themselves believers. And he'll judge those who are true believers and the subset who are phony believers in Jesus. See, I think these parables primarily are directed to churchgoers, to self-confessed Christians rather than those of other faith or none. Let me just try and convince you of it with a few points. Firstly, because this conversation, the way Matthew has painted it, follows on from chapter 24, where in verse 3, the disciples get Jesus alone on the Mount of Olives, and they have a private conversation with Jesus. say, Jesus, tell us about the end times. Then we get chapters 24, we get chapters 25. This is a private conversation, just with his closest disciples and Jesus telling these stories to them. I believe also that, at one level, these parables were Jesus' 11th hour appeal to Judas. Now, whether or not you know your Bible well doesn't matter. You probably know the name of Judas. Judas was one of Jesus' twelve. He's infamous, is he not, for betraying Jesus. His name is still used today in common language as a metaphor for a friend stabbing another friend in the back. That's Judas. The disciples didn't know that that was going to happen. But Jesus, at this moment, close to the cross, close to his death, close to his betrayal, close to that last supper when he would highlight Judas and just appeal to him one more time. These are for him. Judas, come and surrender your life to me. He'd hung around for Jesus for three years. He'd done some of the stuff of Jesus, but Jesus knew where his heart was. He'd not yet surrendered, not fully, to the Lord. He'd not yet repented and believed and put his trust in Jesus as God, as Lord. And then let's look at some of the parables themselves. The bridesmaids, the ten of them, they look the same. They look the same. Ten bridesmaids, the three servants. They're all serving, supposedly, the same master, it would appear. This woolly flock that the shepherd has, they all look fairly similar. If you go down to St. Mary's, you'll find some things that look like goats nibbling away around the gravestones. They're not goats, they're sheep, I'm told. Sway sheep. I haven't said that right, have I, Graham? It's an island in Scotland, apparently. They look the same. And it's not until Judgment Day that the differences, the distinction will be made clear, will be exposed. I think there is a parallel, particularly to the sheep and goat parable in the Old Testament. If you read Ezekiel 34, 11-24, you'll find God there as the shepherd separating his flock. The true sheep from the not-so-true sheep, the impostors. And he talks about the sleek and the fat and the thin. He's separating them out, the goats and the sheep. And finally, to convince you that this is for us, these parables are for us and the church more broadly, all of these called Jesus Lord in this parable. The foolish bridesmaid, in the version I read out, called him Sir, Sir, or the Jesus figure in the story. Sir, Sir, verse 11. The lazy servant called him Master in verse 24. The self-centered goats called him Lord in verse 44. Now in my translation they come out as different expressions, but actually in the original in the Greek, it's all the same word, kurios, meaning Lord, King, ruler. You see, these guys and gals, they knew the lingo. Perhaps they even believed that Jesus was God. But they hadn't surrendered to him as Lord. You see, judgment day is like a referendum. It's like a yes, no. It's a binary decision. You're in or you're out. That's all there is. There's no third category. Jesus is going to be flashing out, therefore, the pretend, the play-acting, and the partial Christian. And there's no third category for them. Those who look like Christians, behave like Christians, but aren't, haven't submitted to Jesus as Lord, there's no third category for them. They go in with the rest, with the goats, with the unwise, with the unfaithful. I believe the one big theme, the big question that Jesus is asking of his 12 is this. Are you saved? Are you saved? Are you saved? I think each of these parables help us to discern whether or not we are saved. Because Jesus doesn't want us to be hoodwinked. He doesn't want us to be deceived into thinking we are when we're not. But I think they also help us as Christians when we're witnessing, when we're discipling others, discerning whether or not, where's this person at? Have they come over the threshold of faith in Jesus or do they just look like they're close to it? Or have they gone? It helps us disciple others. not Because we need to discern, don't we, whether someone else is saved or not. Because that... helps us understand how we can best help and support them and we can't just base it on on their behavior or what they look like we can't base it on just even the prayer they've said or the words they've used we need to look beyond the so-called Christian credentials of those who are seeking God and find out how we can best serve them towards faith or in faith and I think this is very relevant for our nation in the 2011 UK census and I like censuses, and I'm waiting for the next one, 2021. Uh, it said that f- over 33 million people in the UK ticked the box that said they're Christian. 33 million people. 59% of the population said, I'm a Christian. I was down from 72% 10 years previously. But we have to, don't we, church, discern. Really? they really? How many? How do we get a better estimate of it? I don't know. The best source, I guess, was Operation World. I went to them. I trust some of their uh, analysis. I don't know exactly how they do it, but they estimate there to actually be 5.5 million, what they would term evangelical Christians, which may roughly be a proxy to those we're talking about, those who were born again in Jesus. 5.5 million, under 9% of the population. Now, that might be an over-exaggeration. I don't know. But if it was true, then 50% of our nation think they're a Christian, and they're probably not. These parables are for them. We need to help them grapple with these parables. We need to be those who bring these parables to life for 50% of our nation. The question one is this. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Let's look at the 10 bridesmaids. And there's all sorts of detail in here, but let's go to verse 12. This is the key to understanding the whole thing about the bridesmaids. I tell you the truth, said Jesus to the unwise ones, I do not know you. I don't know you. They're shut out of heaven simply for not being known by Jesus. But they thought they were young and bridesmaids. This is a shocking picture. Shut out. Can you imagine going to Quincy and, 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 and Sophie's wedding? The bridesmaids were all dressed up. They were part of the ceremony. They walked down the aisle, but come the reception, you can't come in. Shocking. I never knew you. You see, you're invited into God's eternal wedding reception based on whether or not you have a personal relationship with Jesus. Of course, Jesus, God is all-knowing. He must know these five bridesmaids at one level. But, you know, there's a knowing of, there's a knowing about, and there's a knowing, isn't there? There's a knowing relational. You might say to me, Tim, do you know John Smith? And I might say, yeah, I know John Smith. And then I go, I better qualify that a little bit. I know who he is. I might have met him once. I know a bit about him. But actually, if you were to ask John Smith, I'm thinking, because you might do, I better say, no, I don't actually know him. John Smith might not know who I am at all. He might barely have heard of me. And it, we, so we understand this difference, don't we? We understand it's not knowing about God, knowing of God. It's being known by God and knowing God. That's what it comes down to. I think Jesus made a similar warning in Matthew chapter 7. He says this, For not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only though the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, judgment day, the day we're talking about, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? We use supernatural gifts, Lord. In your name did we not drive out demons and in your name before many miracles? We looked the part. We did the stuff. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now you might think it's a bit mean of the five... Uh, wise bridesmaids not to share their oil with the five who were running out. You had none. But I, I don't think they were being mean. I just don't think it works like that. You can't do that. It doesn't work like that when it comes to relationship with God. You can't inherit a relationship with Jesus by having Christian parents. I had to come and realize that for myself, age 15. You can't become a Christian... By just going to church, you can't have a second-hand relationship with Jesus. You can't be a friend of a friend of God on his Facebook page. It doesn't work like that. He's got to friend you. You can't, you see, you can't piggyback the church into heaven. A second-hand relationship with him is not good enough. As a Christian parent, I might want my children to be saved, but I can't make it happen. I can't put it in my will. I can't leave it to them. I can't pass it on to them. So as well as the, as the wise bridesmaid said, you've got to go to the shop. You've got to go to the oil shop to get the oil. You've got to go to the shop. You've got to buy it for yourself. I can't give you this. It doesn't work like that. You've got to go and find it for yourself. You've got to go to God's oil shop. If you want the oil of his forgiveness, if you want the oil of his new resurrection life in you, you've got to lay yourself on his counter. You've got to give up your sin. You've got to give up your life and say, Lord, I submit myself and surrender to you and find that he gladly gives you off the shelf loads and bucketfuls of abundance. You didn't really pay for it. He paid for it all along. But here it is. The oil is for you. You've got to go to the shop and get it for yourself. Have you got a personal relationship with Jesus? Number two would be this. Have you put your faith in Jesus into action? Let's look at the three servants. I see all these servants received a different gift from their master. But one was thrown into hell who had done nothing with his gift. Nothing. Not done anything. But the laziness, I think, really was symptomatic of his heart. His lack of faith in who the master was and the fact that he needed to serve the master. Now, I, we, believe that we're saved by faith. Not only old faith, but faith in Jesus. Jesus as God, Jesus in his resurrection. That's what saves us. And we're saved by faith alone. Nothing else, nothing added, nothing taken away. It's faith in Jesus. It's always been that way. You read about Abraham in Genesis 15:6. Abraham believed the Lord. He put his faith in God, and that was credited to him as righteousness. That made him right with God. That saved him, His faith. Paul emphasizes this throughout his letters, particularly to the Romans, Romans 3:28, for example. For we maintain that a person is justified, is saved by faith, apart from the works of the law, apart from doing stuff, however nice and right and good that stuff might be. You're saved by faith and faith alone. However, we've got to realise that faith is active. It's not a passive thing. You've got to genuinely put your trust in something and then you're going to act on that as a result. And we understand this in everyday life so well. It's not an alien concept for us. If you believe that a green man means it's safe to cross the road, there's only faith when you step off the pavement onto the tarmac because of the green man. It's only you're just walking up and down the pavement saying, that's a green man, it means it's safe to cross the road. That's not going to do it. It doesn't show faith in any way. You're there at Christmas and there are presents under the tree and you've had a little sneaky look and some of them have got your name on them. You've seen them. They've got my name on I still get excited at Christmas. It's a long way off, I know. How many days? Uh, but it's only, you only believe that that gift is for you the extent to which, when you're allowed, not before, not before, on Christmas Day, one at a time. <laughs> so we can write it down. That's the proper way. So when you take it, When you take and you you rip off the paper, yeah, and you take then it's a gift that you have received. We understand this. I believe that was for me. Oh, yeah, but at Christmas Day, you left it under the tree, you didn't even open it. James, the half-brother of Jesus, put it like this in his little letter. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith in Jesus but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is, what is it? Dead. It's dead, James 2, 14, 25. He goes on to cite Abraham again. Ah, offering his son as a sacrifice. As in some way, an example of his faith and actions working together. It's not that his actions saved him, it's that his faith saved him, but his faith was real faith, so he acted on it. He cites Rahab, the prostitute, hiding Israelite spies as an example, again, of her faith in the, in the God of Israel and her faith in action by hiding the spies that come from Israel, possibly to the detriment of her own life, she wondered. Her faith was in action. They worked together. The actions completed, provided evidence of what they believed. So that James concludes, the half-brother of Jesus, faith without deeds is dead. And I think this parable, this second one about the servants, draws the same conclusion. What can you point to? Where's the tangible evidence in your life of faith in Jesus? Jesus is king. Because those who are saved by Jesus do things for Jesus. They serve him. They obey him. Their faith affects how they act, how they behave, how they are. It's not that those things, doing those things will save you. No, it's out of faith. For those who are saved, this parable, I think, brings some great reassurances and assurances. See, God expects of us out of this life. But his expectations are matched by the gifts and abilities he's given us. And that's the important thing. There's no point comparing ourselves with anybody else. God's gifted us uniquely. And it's how we respond to those gifts that will be rewarded in eternity. We get rewards, all sorts of rewards. The rewards of an encouragement, uh, of God saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Who doesn't want that? Rewards of responsibility. I will put you in charge of many things. There's going to be jobs to do, responsibility in heaven, and it might be a little bit topsy-turvy to the way the world thinks of it. You're going to enjoy the master's joy and happiness. You're going to be provided for with an abundance. These are good things for us to look forward to. And the third question, do you love the church? Let's look at the sheep and goats. Verse 35, 36. For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, you clothed me. I was ill, you looked after me. I was in prison, you came to visit me. And that kind of verse often gets quoted As a motivation for us as church to bless the world, to love the stranger, to serve the poor in our community. And if you've been around us for a few weeks, you'd know this is very much on our heart, and we love to do these things. It is a biblical mandate, we can biblically reason it, but I don't think this is the perfect proof text for that. The sheep reply, When did we do this? The goats ask, When did we not do this? And the king refers to what they did or didn't do to one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine verse 40 verse 45 did you know Jesus has brothers and sisters he does it's a glorious truth those who've believed in Jesus who have received his eternal life we we understand this concept don't we we become children of God we become children of God only then are we children of God the Father of course the Father has a son the Son of God, Jesus. So, We've both got the same dad. We're now brothers and sisters in faith of the Son of God. (laughs) That's not glorious. That's why the Bible talks about us being co-heirs with Christ. And you see, the self-centered goats were sent to eternal punishment based on how they treated Jesus' brothers and sisters, the church, the people of God, the community of God's people. So, do you love Christ's brothers and ch- sisters? Do you love the church? The evidence of our love for Jesus is that we love one another. I think Eddie and Annie's story in Bulgaria really fits with this. They, they, they didn't know that this lady was a sister in the Lord. But they offered her hospitality. They offered a solution. They offered her a provision. They prayed for her, you know, quietly perhaps, what we're going to do, Lord. That's a great example of this. Yeah, it's right to go and help the prisoner it's right to help with winter night shelters and food banks and prison ministries don't get me wrong but, but as evidence of our saving our, our salvation it's how we treat one another in the church how do we love one another John, best friend I imagine of Jesus at least on earth put it like this in his little letter whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar for whoever does not love their brother or sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. And He has given us this command: anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. It's the same side of the of the of the same coin. Another side of the same coin. If you love God, then you love the brothers and sisters. You can't separate the two. It's not two coins, or where they're going to heads one and tails the other. No, they're the, It's the same thing. A Jesus and me in a self-centered life of churchless nomads isn't enough. Jesus equates how we treat the church to how we treat Him. Again, there's some great encouragement here for those who are in Christ. The kingdom was prepared for you. The future kingdom, the heavenly kingdom, was prepared with you in mind. Since the creation of the world, before then, He He had it in mind. There are things for us to inherit, things for us to enjoy for all eternity. So as I just wrap up, I just want to summarize really. There is a warning and there is an equipping in these parables. There's a warning coming with the clarity and urgency of Jesus' warning. A judgment day will come and it will bring some surprises. Don't you be a surprise. Don't fool yourself into thinking you're a Christian when you haven't got a personal relationship, your own relationship with God, with Jesus. You might fool yourself, you might fool us, but you won't fool God and you'll be shut out of the kingdom forever. Don't fool yourself into assenting to Jesus as Lord and saying Jesus is Lord but not living with Jesus as Lord. Intellectual faith in Jesus isn't enough. You've got to be active, you've got to put your faith In his death and resurrection or you'll be banished into spiritual darkness (laughs) Jesus isn't mincing here his word don't fool yourself into thinking it's just Jesus and me if you love Jesus you'll love the church you'll love his people it's as simple as that surrender now to Jesus as king while there's still time and then be reassured that this irrevocable invitation will be yours to an eternal wedding banquet, to citizenship in heaven that can never be revoked, to an eternal life and inheritance in Jesus. And to the brothers and sisters, to the disciples of Jesus, to the church, these do help us, actually. They equip us in our witnessing and discipling, as I said at the beginning. They help us discern past what's, what we see and what we hear and the credentials and the qualities and no, know what's going on in their heart. I think these will really help us assess evidence and lead people helpfully into discipleship. Let's be innocent as doves, but as wise as serpents. Wise. We need to be wise in this. And they also help us disciple ourselves. Really, these three parables distill down what really counts in this life. We can go, and we, want, we should go, and God wants us to go assured of our eternal security. But these parables also tell us what's going to be rewarded in heaven. And therefore, what we should really go for now. No time to waste. Let's store up treasures in heaven. So the three questions to leave you with, my friend. How is your personal relationship with God? Take that away. And what are you going to do about it? Are you putting your faith into action by serving God, using your God-given abilities and talents for his glory? And don't put a limit on the talents He's given you the musical ones, the artistic ones, the creative ones, the the entrepreneurial skills, the money-making skills you have, the caring, the managing, the medical, the practical skills. All of that is God-given. How are you using them to glorify God? It could be in 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 a job, but in that job, are you glorifying the Lord? It could have other expressions in the kingdom of God. How are you doing with that? And how are you responding to the needs within the church? Yes, this one but the Christians you know, the Christians you don't know, the Christian stranger who turns up into your life, the worldwide global church where there is much persecution and imprisonment in the name of Jesus. Thank you.